This morning's scripture reading comes from <clears throat> Matthew uh, verse, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It can be found starting on the page 810 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity Community Church. Really happy to be with you this morning. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but for most of my life, I, I frankly have not, didn't know what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it seemed like an enormous burden. Um, but I think if we really come to understand uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, we'll recognize it as good news. The Sermon on the Mount is good news. And a lot of the understanding of how it's good news actually comes about through this uh, passage. So this morning, I just want to open in prayer that God would give us understanding also, prayer for myself, because uh, being employed this close to the seminary where, uh, that you attended um, leaves you open to the grave misfortune of having to teach on Matthew to the man who taught you about Matthew. So I am in that position this morning, um, so if you'd join me in prayer, that'd be great. Um, Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for what you have accomplished um, in creating a people... Um, that the old law couldn't create and giving what the old law couldn't give. I just pray that you'd help us to understand. Uh, there's a lot of paradigm shifts that take place as we approach Matthew, and particularly this passage. Give us understanding, Lord, and, and give me um, clarity in, in how I communicate. Amen. So I want to start by kind of picking on um, a tendency that we have. Uh, you know, I'm half-joking here, but... Um, Sometimes when we learn that someone has done something wrong, um, you know, that guy got really angry or, or lusted or whatever, sometimes we'll, we'll, we have this turn of phrase. We'll say, well, you know, he's human. And more and more, that just becomes baffling to me. Um, like, if I take a hammer and I bring it down on a nail and it breaks, my response is not, well, it's just being a hammer. No, it's failing at that moment to do what hammers do, right? It's a bad hammer, so, like, if you were to open up an encyclopedia from the Garden of Eden and look up the article on humans, it would be very long and compelling. 
but sinful wouldn't be included in that article. Sin got added after chapter 3 of Genesis. So what I'm trying to say is that humans don't sin because they're human, they sin because they're sinful. Humans don't sin because they're human, they sin because they're sinful. So that, uh, that begs the question, what, what are humans for, after all? And I think the picture that, um, that Genesis paints for us um, is pretty compelling. Um, I don't have time to go entirely into it, but we're told that humans are made in the image of God. So essentially, by the very act of living, humans extend the rule and the glory and the creativity and the goodness of God. That's what we were made to do. Isn't that an incredible thing that in being image bearers, we were meant to extend something, reflect something of our creator to the world. We were kingdom bringers in the beginning. And so that's why sin is so utterly tragic. That's why the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis is so utterly tragic. Humanity did not want to extend God's rule on his terms. They wanted to extend their own rule on their terms. And so what we see is this turning away from the kingdom of God, from the rulership of God, to a kingdom of our own. But under the kingdom of God, there's life. And so when we turn away from the kingdom of God, we've turned toward death. The kingdom of God is light. When we've turned away, we've turned toward darkness. The first is order. The second is chaos. The first is beauty. The second is decay and corruption. And we fail to do what humans do. When we, when we abdicate, right, on, on our task as humans to bring the glory of God, we fail to, to act human. We're acting like something else. So hold that thought and stow it away. Let me approach this from another direction. So growing up, like I said, I had this view of the Sermon on the Mount that it was this enormous burden um, as though what Jesus was doing was ramping up the demands of the law so I'd feel really extra guilty and really understand my need for grace as though the old law didn't do that already. What I couldn't conceive of was that the Sermon on the Mount is amazingly good news. It is gospel. And part of the reason for that is that I had this very stunted view of salvation, sort of like a half-truth view of salvation. I believe that the whole idea of salvation is that Jesus has come to die and rise so that when I die, I can go to a good place rather than a bad place. And that's all absolutely true, right? But it's a half-truth. It falls so short of the full vision that the Bible gives us that it's, it's almost destructive if that's all we have. See, Jesus didn't just come to give us a new destiny. He came to give us a new humanity. Jesus didn't just come to give us a new destiny. He came to give us a new humanity. He didn't come just to extend the kingdom of God over our living accommodations. He came to extend it over me, over us, over our hearts, to return us to our original task of being human. And when I realized that, I came to realize that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is announcing just that. Not only the restoration of the earth, but the restoration, like, uh, like Dallas Willard's phrase, the renovation of my heart. He, he's announcing the return 
of my ability to reflect and extend the goodness and creativity and beauty and glory of God to this world. He's announcing the return of my ability to worship by living. So that's what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. So in this passage, um, we sort of have two halves. Um, The first one is verses 13 through 16, and then uh, 17 through 20 being the second half. But everything kind of hinges on this idea of Jesus as the one who fulfills the law. Understanding the whole passage comes about when we understand what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So the big idea for the day is that in fulfilling the law, Jesus creates a humanity the old law couldn't create by giving what the old law couldn't give. Jesus creates a humanity that the old law could not create by giving what the old law couldn't give. So let's piece apart that phrase. Um, So the first half, Jesus creates a humanity the old law couldn't create. I'm just going to reread the verses, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." So Jesus deploys um, two or three metaphors here to essentially describe um, how his disciples function in the world. The first metaphor that he gives is salt, that Jesus' disciples are salt. So what's he getting at here? I think it could be either two things, but both are sort of bound up in the idea of liveliness. So salt... You add salt to food to to give flavor. Otherwise, bland, unpleasing food can often become great just by sprinkling a little bit of salt on it. Salt brings life to food. But at the same time, um, salt preserves. It's It's a natural preservative. And so salt pushes back decay. It pushes back corruption coming on food. So in in both cases, there's this sense that Jesus is getting at, that that his disciples push back um, decay or or whatever. They bring liveliness. So the decay of anger and lust and lying and the blandness of selfishness and pride are pushed back as we do what Jesus says. So by doing the things that Jesus tells us to do, by living in the way that he tells us to live, we actually can be confident that in our sphere of life, there's this sense in which we are bringing life, pushing back decay, bringing liveliness. And so what does it mean when a community of disciples has ceased to function this way? Like, how absurd is the idea of salt losing its saltiness? That's like saying water has lost its wetness. It's this idea that salt is, is acting in a way that goes against the very thing it exists to do. And if ever there were salt that did that, it would only be good for getting tossed out. You couldn't use it for what it was meant for. 
Disciples exist to do a particular thing in this world, and a disciple who is abdicated on that task is a contradiction in terms. In the same way, disciples are the light of the world. Light exists to give light, right? It it makes things clear. It guides. So, like, if you're going to light a candle and you go through the whole process of, like, trimming the wick, lighting the match, burning yourself, throwing away that original match, lighting another one, finally getting the candle lit, if you go through the whole thing of lighting a candle, um, why would you go through all that and then just be like, I'm going to put this under this Rubbermaid bin, all right, and we're good. Like, that's not what you do with a candle. You put it on a lampstand so that it can give light. In the same way, Jesus' disciples exist to give light. We exist to push back darkness. And so it's absurd to think of disciples not pushing back darkness. Essentially what Jesus is describing is this way of life in which Jesus' disciples, we exist in a world in which the kingdoms of evil, they're mortally wounded, but they still exist. So we have this world of ongoing decay and corruption and darkness. And as we do what Jesus says, as we follow the teachings of the smartest man ever, forever, we become a counter-movement. The disciples of Jesus are a counter-movement in this world. And we become that by doing what Jesus says. And yes, we do it brokenly, and yes, we do it imperfectly for now. But the idea is that if someone were to walk among us and see our lives, see the way we live, they could confidently say, now I know that's not the perfect vision of this, but I bet that's what God's rule is like. When God's rule is here, I bet it's going to look a lot like that, like their way of life. So think about it this way. If, if I go into the city, um, Chicago, um, and I visit Chinatown or Little Italy, what I will find there will be groups of people um, who are sharing the space with native Chicagoans, um, and yet something about their customs, something about even like the aesthetics in, in that neighborhood or in that district, like the the way they decorate their homes or even build buildings, whatever, the language they speak, something about it. I could walk into Chinatown or Little Italy and say, no, I know that's not the full thing. But I bet Hong Kong or Rome, I bet people there live a little bit like that. And for some of those people, I bet I could be confident I could pluck them right out of Chinatown or Little Italy and put them in Hong Kong or put them in Rome, and nothing would change about their way of life The only differences would be that they would be living it without resistance. They wouldn't have the ongoing inner temptation to act like a Chicagoan, right? (laughs) Jesus is describing the church as that, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You, as those who are doing what Jesus says, as the disciples, the apprentices of Jesus, you are a counter-movement in a world full of decay, In a world full of decay, you bring salt. In a a world full of the blandness and the banality of evil, you bring life. In a world of darkness, you bring light. To really get, I think, the meat of this, we actually have to look backward um, to the Old Testament. 
Um, because there was another time where God gathered a bunch of his people at, the, at a mountain to give them teaching. This is the second time that God has done that. So the first time I'm talking about the Exodus. So remember that the, the Israelites, they're oppressed, they're dehumanized, they're, they have no identity, they're under the rule of Pharaoh. And God comes in this incredible act of redemption, throws down with Pharaoh, wins, takes his people back. But that's not the climax of the Exodus. That's not the peak of the story. The peak of the story is when God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he tells them what kind of people they're going to be. You see, God didn't just give them a new destiny, a destiny in a promised land. God's intention was to give them a new humanity. And that is their salvation. And so God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. If you want to go to the side, thanks. So this is what he, he says at the opening of his speech at, at Sinai. We, we often associate Sinai with the law. Um, but really, like the law is located in a much bigger story. So to really get the law, we have to get the story. And introductions are really important, right? So this is the introduction. Right after this comes the Ten Commandments, pretty much. I mean, you, you have more text, whatever. So like he opens with... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed... Can we, can we read this together, starting with now, therefore? You want to do that? Let's read this together. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Epic. So this is the beginning of what we generally think as the actual rules of the law. You know, we sometimes it's, it's like a inexact language. We like the first five books of the Bible are often called Torah, which means teaching or law. And so sometimes we think of the whole thing as law. But this is the actual law code that's beginning here. Um, and so we have this temptation to tune out, but we really shouldn't. Like, there's a lot in the Mosaic Law that we don't practice as Christians in the 21st century, but that doesn't mean it's not this hugely important moment in our scriptures. So the law exists to guide Israel in what it means to act as God's people in their time and place. The law exists so they can be this. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be treasured possession what I really want to hone in on is a kingdom of priests. That in doing what the law says, Israel will be this. They will act as and live as God's people. A good analogy for it is to think of it as a constitution. Like a constitution is instruction, it is teaching. Like our, our American constitution includes restrictions on our life or guidance for our life, but at the same time, just by virtue of it being written, the Constitution creates a people. It brings together the people of the United States of America. In the same way, we can think of the law of Israel doing that very thing. It showed Israel how to relate to God. It showed them how to relate to each other and how to relate to the world around them. And again, the one I really want to focus on is this idea of the kingdom of priests. Now, they had priests within the kingdom who mediated God to the kingdom of Israel, but God's saying that the whole nation 
is a kingdom of priests, a priestly nation. So who are they mediating God to? The world. God is giving them not just a new destiny, but a new humanity, a restored humanity. That in keeping this law in their time and place, they will begin to reflect God to the world in the way that humans were made to. Right? So that's a pretty incredible, weighty thing. So again, the law goes on to describe what a right relationship to God, each other, and the rest of the world looks like. And when you have those things ordered, that's called righteousness. A right relationship to God, each other, and the rest of the world, it's righteousness. So that's a huge, huge uh, theme for our passage today. God's people act as a counter-movement in a world that is in rebellion to God. Just com- like, even as a side note, compare the code, the law code of Israel to like the, the code of Hammurabi or, or other ancient Near Eastern laws. You will not see the vulnerable looked after in those laws. You see it in Israel. Israel was a counter-movement. Like, even back then, it's an amazing thing. So God's people act as a counter-movement in a world that is darkened and in rebellion to God. So there's one metaphor that I skipped, and that's the city on a hill. There's one thing a city on a hill can't do, and that's be invisible, right? So a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And when you have a city on a hill, uh, depending on how good and strong and beautiful that city is, people will be attracted to it for two reasons. Um, there will be some who will be attracted to the city because they really want to bring it down. Now, sometimes as we do what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we act as the kingdom counter-movement in this world, all that will mean for the people around us is that we're really nice people. Like, sometimes that's all that it'll mean. Other times, though, being a disciple of Jesus will make us conscious of the sufferings of the vulnerable. It will make us conscious of the fact that that suffering has come about because of some form of oppression, either by individuals or systems, and that being a good disciple in that moment will mean we rise. And there will be people who will slap us in return. At times, a city on a hill will attract people because they want to bring it down. But Jesus wants us to particularly pay attention to the other reason why people might be attracted to a city on a hill. And that's because in seeing our good works, they themselves might come to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. The other reason people are attracted to a good city on a hill is because they want to move there. Because the church, when it is doing what Jesus says, is a place of beauty. So Jesus creates a humanity the old law couldn't create. But the question right now is, how will Jesus create this humanity? How will Jesus bring about this counter-movement? And this question was pretty pressing to the Israelites as well, at least to Moses. See, it became pretty clear immediately after Sinai, well, not even immediately after, I mean, they were making the golden calf there at the foot of the mountain. So, like, right away, the Israelites made it clear that 
that they could not hold up under the law. So they'd go into rebellion again, more laws would be added, they'd resist again, more laws would get added. It gets to this point in Deuteronomy when they're about to enter the promised land and Moses is giving them this speech and he's detailing the curses that will follow if they break the covenant. And he straight up says, when you break the covenant and are put into exile, he knows that they're going to, to, to completely fail, that they will not be able to uphold the law. They will fail as the counter movement. They will worship other idols. They will take on the customs of the people in the land. When they take a king, it won't be a king that's there to reflect God. It will be a king who they want to exist like the kings of the other nations. Through and through, Israel will fail, and Moses can see this because he's seen it already. He's seen it all through the wilderness. So we have this passage in, in Deuteronomy. If you want to bring that up on the screen. Thanks. Can we read this together again? I just think it's a good practice to do. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So the law existed to bring that, that righteousness I was talking about, to bring that righteousness to God's people as they follow its rules. But ultimately, if they're only trying to follow the rules without their hearts being changed, without actually loving God from the core of their being, they will always be harboring the desires that end in sin. They will always be heaping on themselves the curses. And so... What they needed was not to be better law keepers just for the sake of following the law. They needed new hearts. They needed to become the kinds of people who love God and do what he says. And that brings us to the second part. Jesus gives what the old law couldn't give. So verses 17 through 20, I'm going to reread them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus opens by saying that he's not setting aside, he's not abolishing the law and the prophets. But how could this be? What does he mean by that? So in order to figure out what he means by that, we kind of have to take the whole picture into account. We know that he is going to reinterpret a whole bunch of laws over the course of Matthew. In Matthew 15, he's going to reinterpret the food laws, um, he's going to reinterpret the Sabbath laws. And then we also know that his followers, the early church, when non-Jews were joining the church, they were not required to, to, to practice the Mosaic law in the same way, at least not the entirety. Um, we also know that, that after the cross, sacrifices end for the people of God, for, for Christians. So how is Jesus not setting aside or abolishing the law? Like, a whole bunch of changes are about to happen. Excuse me while I sip my coffee. Um, 
So what does he mean by this? I think what, we're, what we need to first recognize is that Jesus is saying he is the great interpreter of the law. That he, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people will be stunned because he speaks with authority. He's not just appealing to the law as his authority. He's saying, I'm the one who gets to interpret this thing and tell you what it really means. Bold. Um, so he's the great interpreter of the law. And it's clear straight from this passage that he doesn't think the law was worthless. He makes that abundantly clear. So he says that the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. And, and by that, I think he means that the whole project of, of God's redemption, his, his redemptive works, so the whole project of the earth being restored, heaven coming down to earth, all things new, that the law will not pass away until that moment. And he even goes so far as to say that anyone who relaxes even the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that when in, in Matthew 15 he's going to appear to relax? The food laws, I think it's Matthew 15. Ask Steve Bryan. Um, well, how can that be? Well, Matthew is going on on a number of occasions to uh, again show us that so here, I'll put it this way. Whatever might change when Jesus fulfills the law, one thing is clear. In some way, Jesus' disciples will always revere the law, even while not strictly observing it word for word, because they will recognize what the law was for and will recognize what the law is accomplishing. The purpose of the law, remember, it isn't just rule-keeping, God didn't give the, the law in order to give people something to do, right? The law is God's way in a particular time and place and a particular stage in redemption of producing in people a right relationship to him, each other, and the world. The law is there to somehow create righteousness. So things might be starting to take place now. What does Jesus say next? He, he says that the righteousness of his disciples will have to far exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. That's basically impossible. Like, as far as, if you're defining following the, if you're defining righteousness as law-keeping, you're not going to beat the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ultimate. So what does Jesus mean? It's a difference in quality, not quantity. The scribes and the Pharisees are sort of like so if you're going to take a trip to northern Wisconsin, right? Because if you're going to take a trip, that's where you go. You go to northern Wisconsin. So you're, you're getting everything ready to go to northern Wisconsin, and you get your car all ready, new tires, oil change, tune-up, you vacuum the inside, all the right CDs, wash and wax the front, or the, you know, the outside. So the car is, is right. It is the type of car that should be able to make it to your destination and then you get in and you drive that thing straight south. You're not going to end up in Manaqua, right? You're going to end up in Memphis. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they have all the, the, the boxes checked off on the list. But at the end of the day, even though they believe that their righteousness is the type that should get them the goal or whatever, they don't have the type of heart that will drive them there. They don't have the type of heart that is actually turned toward the Lord. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that his disciples will have a better righteousness, a righteousness that 
ends them up in northern Wisconsin, right? See, it's interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they followed the law largely because in doing so, they, they believed that um, through their repentance, through their law-keeping, they would invoke God to overthrow the Romans and establish their own sovereignty, their own kingship. They were interested, really interested in a new destiny. They were not truly interested in a new humanity. They only wanted half of the salvation that God always intended for his people. They wanted a new destiny, but not a new humanity. And for us, as the followers and disciples of Jesus, um, God is promising both. And so what does it mean that we have a better righteousness? Jesus gives what the old law couldn't give. He gives new hearts, true righteousness, and he does it in two ways. As this is developed um, in the Old Testament, um, this theme of the heart will come up a number of times, but one time uh, is in Jeremiah 31, I think, where um, Jeremiah will bring up again the concept of the heart, and he uses this metaphor of the law being written on the hearts of God's people. So they will, they will seek after God, their own volition, through love of God, and he connects that concept to the forgiveness of sins. That somehow, that new heart will, will come about because God is going to accomplish this incredible act of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes to give us that new heart. He arrives as the representative of Israel, as we've been learning. And since he's the representative of Israel, he's the representative of all humanity. And when he goes to that cross, as our representative, as our savior king, he takes into himself, into himself all evil and breaks its power all evil, including our own, and becomes victorious over it all. And in his resurrection, that's where we, we see the guarantee. We see the reality come about. The new creation burst from the grave. And in his cross, Jesus brings about the forgiveness of sins. That all our wrongdoings, all our brokenness, all our failures to be the righteous people that God wanted us to be, that God made us to be, the kingdom-bringing, glory-directing, God-reflecting humans, all our failures to fall short, all the subhumanness of sin, Jesus beats it. And we are washed. The forgiveness of sins comes about. And it comes about, again, not to give us a new destiny only. It's not just so that, like, there, now you're forgiven, and salvation for you is just so you end up in a good place after you die. Jesus is saying that you're washed so that you can become a new human. So that your very humanness can be restored. And it can come about because the burden of having to upkeep the law of God yourself is off your shoulders. Jesus will later say in Matthew that his burden is light and his yoke is easy because he brings about the forgiveness of sins. He, so he literally gives us a better righteousness, his own. And so this is where we begin to see how the Sermon on the Mount is good news. 
The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing what it looks like for God's people who are now forgiven by his cross. Jesus is showing what it looks like for that people to be the counter-movement, to live under the rule of God. He shows them a vision of what it is to follow God from their hearts right here in a world that has been twisted. And so there's a second sense in which Jesus gives us a better righteousness. He, he doesn't just vaguely say, hey, have a new heart, and then lets us go. He actually puts feet to this thing. So as the Sermon on the Mount goes on, he is going to unpack what it looks like for a true disciple who is forgiven and following God from their heart to, to resist anger, to resist lust. He's going to say that murder isn't the, the deepest problem. It's what your heart has been doing. Adultery isn't the deepest problem. It's what your heart has been doing. And Jesus is going to show us what life looks like under the reign of God. And so we should read the Sermon on the Mount and recognize that, yes, it's teaching, yes, it's instruction, yes, we're supposed to follow it, and all at the same time, it's Jesus telling us this is what the world is going to look like under the rule of God. Beginning with us, beginning with the counter-movement, a world full of people who love and follow God from their hearts. So wrapping up, Jesus gives what the law could not give, or rather, he creates a humanity the law could not create, and gives what the law could not give. So, I think at this point, um, I'm hoping it's become clear that the Sermon on the Mount is good news when we take the whole vision of Matthew into account, but I know that there can still be a sense of discouragement when we think, okay, so we have this mission of being a counter-movement, how do I do that? What does it actually mean to be a disciple? And I would just say two things. First, again, Jesus is about to put feet to this thing. He's going to show us in the practicals what it means to renovate the heart. Um, and so we can look forward to him uh, really ruffling our feathers over the next few weeks as he unpacks that. And we should let him ruffle our feathers a little bit. We should, we should let him offend us. We should feel the sting of some of the things he's going to say. Um, and then we should just eagerly follow him. Um, secondly, Recognize, too, that discipleship isn't overnight. That it is a renewal of our minds and of our hearts and of our habits, and that takes time. So we won't embody what we're about to read before the resurrection, at least not fully. Um, but at the same time, let's turn our car in the right direction, right? Like, re recognizing that this will take time, recognizing that this is hard, can we as a church, just be all about this? Like, like, can we, as we dive deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, can we just make a pact with each other today um, that we're going to do what Jesus says? And he'll be with us in that. And we'll be in it together, linking arms, holding our, each other accountable to to do what he says. Can we do that? Let's, let's be disciples of Jesus and follow him with joy and bravery. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. And God, I just pray that you would help us to be enamored with 
this new humanity that you're bringing. That we would be overjoyed as we read the Sermon on the Mount and see what a good king Jesus is. What an awesome place the kingdom is. That we would see the moral beauty in what you're about to call us to and that we would just be amped to, to do it, to begin experiencing it, to take faltering, shaky baby steps toward the, the humanity that you're saving us for. And that in that process, God, that you would make us a city on a hill in Lake County. Impossible to keep hidden. Pray, Lord, that we would be a beacon place, drawing the broken and drawing the marginalized, drawing the discouraged, and that they would find rest for their souls here as we find rest for ours. I pray, Lord, that we would be a little kingdom and that people would, would come among us into our homes and into our friendships and our community groups, and, and they would say, I know that's not the full rule of God yet. But I bet when the rule of God comes, it's going to look a lot like that. And that they would give glory to their Father who is in heaven. Thank you for your forgiveness as we stumble. Um, we love you, Jesus. We love what you've done. Amen.